you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Tonight we're going to look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 18. This is the section that Paul is answering some questions that the Thessalonian believers had for Timothy. Remember, Paul sent Timothy back to check on the Thessalonian believers. And Timothy, Timothy has now returned back to Paul with news of, of the church there. And they've had some questions. And seemingly most of the questions have centered around the return of Jesus, when that's going to be, how that's going to take place, and what's going to happen. So Paul's going to begin addressing those, and he's going to continue in the second letter to the Thessalonians to continue to address those. So apparently this was a, a big question in their minds. And the first thing that Paul's going to answer is the question of what about those believers who have believed upon Christ, but now they've died, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. How are we to think about them? Let's read together. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that these words are the encouragement to us that you intend them to be. We pray, Lord, that we would think rightly of the return of Jesus and we would think rightly about our resurrection from the dead and we would think rightly about those who have died in Jesus Christ before us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grant us these understandings and this encouragement by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So beginning here from verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed. This is a phrase that Paul is going to use about eight times in his letters. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians. He uses this phrase, we do not want you to be uninformed, or sometimes translated, we don't want you to be ignorant, which just means lacking knowledge or lacking understanding. We don't want you to be uninformed. And then he goes on to explain what he doesn't want them to be uninformed about. Paul goes on to give them words of great comfort. He doesn't want them to be lacking in their understanding of the things of God, so he explains to them the things of God, and then he expects those things to comfort them. He goes on to say that these words are words of encouragement or words of comfort for you. From that we're reminded that the things of God, the doctrine of God, the theology that the Scriptures teach to us the things of God that are taught to us in the Scriptures are there for our comfort. We can find great comfort in the doctrine of God. We can find great comfort in what the Scriptures teach us 
about the character of God, about the actions of God, about the plan of God. We remember back, remember as Jesus is wanting to comfort his disciples on the night of his arrest, he knows that in just a few short hours he's going to be arrested and he's going to be tried and convicted and he's going to be tortured and executed. And he wants to give comfort to his disciples. And what does he say to them? He gives them all this doctrine about the Trinity and the character of God and the plan of God. And he gives this to them so that they would find comfort in those words. So let's not forget that Scripture is written to us, not just so that we can have greater knowledge about the character of God and feel like maybe we are superior to other Christians, but theology is given to us in the Word of God for our comfort and for our building up and for our edification. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And when he refers to these who are asleep, we know that that's a euphemism or just a way of of talking about those who are dead. And we know that that phrase, those who are asleep in Christ or asleep in the Lord, refers to those who have died. And they are now no longer inhabiting their body. Their spirits have left and, and their body is dead. And they're often called in the scriptures asleep in the Lord. In fact, about a dozen times, the New Testament refers to believers who have died as being asleep in the Lord. And it's interesting to think about because it's not just a polite way of talking about death. The scriptures talk about believers who have died in Christ as being asleep in the Lord. You know that the scriptures never speak about an unbeliever being asleep, an unbeliever who has died as being asleep. The scriptures never talk about that, but only about believers who are asleep in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that some people have thought it means that our soul is asleep. That after we die, if we are in Jesus, that after we die, that we're no longer aware and we're just sort of asleep and awaiting this resurrection and we don't know what's going on and, and we're just sort of uh, in that state of being asleep in our souls. And that's not what it means. In fact, the Scriptures tell us specifically that our soul is always conscious we, we remember the words of Paul. Remember as he spoke to the Philippians and he says, you know, I'd a whole lot rather go on and to be with Jesus than to stay here. But there's great gain in this life. But then he says, to be away from the body is to be present with Jesus, as he says to the Corinthians. So it's either one or the other. Either I'm in the body or I'm with Jesus. Or as we think about Luke chapter 23, the thief on the cross. You remember the thief on the cross? And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So the Bible doesn't teach that if we are believers in Jesus and we die, that we're just sort of in this comatose state or this state of, of, of sleep. Instead, what it means when it says that we're asleep in the Lord, it's referring to our bodies being asleep. And speaking of a, a rest time for our bodies as our bodies await the resurrection. Our souls, if we are in Jesus, then immediately go to be with God. But our bodies are awaiting, or they're, they're resting in the grave for this time of resurrection in which they're reunited back with our spirits. We sometimes put it like this. There's two ways that we can think of death. We can think of spiritual death. And spiritual death is the souls being separated from God. Or we can think of physical death in which the soul is separated from the body. And at physical death, our soul is separated from our body. Our body rests and awaits for the resurrection. Our soul goes to be with God. 
And then at the resurrection, they're reunited back together. Our bodies are resurrected in a new glorified state. And our souls are reunited back again with our bodies. And so the scriptures speak of our body being asleep or someone being asleep in the Lord. That's a wonderful way to put it. But you know, as the New Testament speaks, like I say, about a dozen times about believers in Jesus who have died being asleep in the Lord, do you know who it never says is asleep? And when referring to death, is Jesus. The scriptures never speak of Jesus being asleep. Instead, the scriptures tell us Jesus died. And there's a big difference between a believer who has died and being asleep in the Lord and Jesus who not only suffered physical death, but he suffered spiritual death as well. Jesus's physical death wasn't like ours. Jesus experienced the full force and the full brunt of death in all of its power because not only was his physical body killed, but his soul in death was separated from God. And so he experienced the full force of death with all of its horror. We are spoken of as being, once we die, as being asleep in the Lord and our body is sort of in this time of rest and our soul is with God. But instead, Jesus experienced a completely different kind of death. Not being asleep in the Lord, but death. So that we wouldn't have to experience such a death as that. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians? He says, death, where is your sting? And then he goes on to say, what is the sting of death? The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. You ever thought about that and think, that sounds a little bit backwards, like the sting of sin is death. But no, Paul, he gets it right. The sting of death is sin. In other words, if we die in sin, That's the true sting of death. But if we die in Christ, then the stinger is gone. It's like a bee. You know how a bee can only sting one time and a bee stings one person and then the bee dies? And that one person takes the full force of the stinger, but that bee can do no more harm? It's like the bee of death stung Jesus. And after stinging Jesus, it can't sting anyone else again or it can't sting anyone who's in Jesus. Okay? Donald Barnhouse, you may have heard his name. He was a famous preacher of, uh, I don't know, 75 years ago or something like that. He had an illustration that has always stuck with me. He lost his first wife to cancer. And he was driving home from preaching her funeral with his four young children in the car. And they're driving home from the funeral of their mother and his wife. And as they're driving down the highway at highway speed, they pass a a large moving type truck going the other way. And the sun was on a certain side of the road to where when the when the car and the truck passed each other, the shadow of the truck passed over the car. And right then, Barnhouse thought of the illustration that he wanted to use to help his children to deal with the death of their mother. He asked him this question. He said, would you rather be hit by a truck Or would you rather be hit by the shadow of a truck? And his children answered, well, certainly we'd rather be hit by the shadow. The shadow of a truck can't hurt us. And he said, exactly. Jesus was hit with the truck of death so that we are just hit with the shadow of the truck of death. And that sums it up perfectly. 
this idea of us being asleep in the Lord. Yes, we physically die. Those who have physically died in Christ, they, they have suffered a physical death. But they did not suffer the true sting of death. They did not suffer the true horror of death that Jesus suffered on their behalf. And so for us to die with our sins forgiven, then the sting of that is gone. Yes. So about those, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So this is the point that Paul is going to make. He, he, he wants them to not grieve as others do, others who have no hope. So apparently some of the Thessalonian believers have believed upon Jesus and they've been converted, but then they've died. Maybe they've died from natural causes. Maybe there's persecution going on. Who knows what was going on? But some of the believers have now died a physical death. The Thessalonian believers are grieving tremendously for them, but Paul wants them to not grieve as others do. But notice he doesn't say, I don't want you to not grieve. Paul doesn't write to them and say, you know, you have no reason to grieve. You guys are you're born again. You're believers in Jesus Christ. You're going to see them again. You're going to go to heaven. What do you have to be sorry about? He doesn't say that at all. He says, I want you to not grieve as others do who have no hope. Those who have no hope for the next life apparently grieve in a completely different way than Paul thinks that they should grieve. They should grieve. And in fact, their grief over the loss of a loved one is just as deep and just as profound and just as heart-wrenching as the grief that lost people endure when they, look, when they lose loved ones. The grief that believers suffer when, when other believers who are or loved ones die, our grief is not any less. And it shouldn't be any less. In fact, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, if loved ones died and we didn't grieve, think of it this way, that's really showing a profound unappreciation for the person that God gave us in our life. If we lose them and then we don't grieve over that, then that's, that's really showing that our, in our hearts we really didn't appreciate the gift of that person in our life. So God expects us to grieve and to grieve as deeply and as profoundly and as heart-wrenchingly as lost people grieve for their loved ones. But the difference is, is that we don't grieve without hope. Now what does that mean? I think it means this. I think it means that our grief as deep and as real and as profound as it is when we lose a loved one does not ever lead us into despair. And that's the difference. Grief with hope never leads us into despair. Grief without hope will lead us into despair. So Paul says, grieve for loved ones that you've lost, but I'm going to tell you some things. And what I tell you, what I want this to do is to cause you and to help you to not grieve as though you have no hope, as though your grief will then overwhelm you and lead you into this emotional sort of despair. So he says, I do not want you to, to grieve as others who do not have hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. Now we'll stop right there and think for just a moment about how Paul just put that. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. Do you know that the Scriptures, the New Testament, presents to us the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the resurrection of the believer in Jesus Christ from the dead 
the New Testament presents those two things to us as not two separate events, but two different episodes of the same event. I want to encourage you to think about your resurrection from the dead. Should we not be alive when Jesus returns and we too pass away from this life? I want you to, I want to encourage you to think about your resurrection from the dead in those terms, not as some separate event from the resurrection of Jesus, not even as a separate event from the resurrection of other believers, but they're all the same event. That's how the New Testament scriptures present them to us. Listen, for example, to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So close is our resurrection identified with Jesus' resurrection that the New Testament wants us to think of those as the same thing. Jesus' resurrection was the first. Ours is not the first, but they're the same, they're the same event. Separated by time, but they're the same event. He was, he was raised from the dead, and just as certain as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will we be raised from the dead. Why? Because they're the same resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says he was the first fruits of resurrection. Now, if you know anything about farming and growing crops, you understand the, the principle of first fruits. First fruits means that when the plant, when the vegetable is just reaching harvest time, there are, there are those first fruits of the harvest. And the farmer knows that the first fruits tell him what? They tell him what the harvest is going to be like. If the first fruits are good, then the harvest will be good. If the first fruits are bad, then he can expect a bad harvest. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the first fruit of our resurrection. And so therefore, his resurrection goes before ours, but it shows us and tells us what ours is. So just as sure and just as certain as Jesus was raised from the dead, so also will we be raised from the dead. So he says, even so, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's fallen asleep again. God will bring with him, or that could also be translated, God will take with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That's the third time that Paul has reminded them that these are not the words of people. These are the words of God. Verse, or chapter 2, verse 13, he says, you accepted this not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Or chapter 4 and verse uh, verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this is the third time that Paul's reminded you. I'm not just telling you my opinions. I'm telling you the truth of God's word. 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there's the issue. The issue is that those believers in Thessalonica are afraid that their loved ones who have died have missed something. That they've missed this celebration, this return, this rapture event. And so Paul is saying to them, let me just cut to the issue and say to you, no, they've not missed anything. They're not... We are not going to precede them. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that in just a minute, about what that means. But Paul says, we're not going to precede them. In fact, they're going to precede us. So we'll talk in just a minute about what he means by that. 
We who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and listen to this language, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Those three things. The cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Those are the three sounds that the return of Jesus will have. They will have this cry of command. And we're not told who speaks the command, whether it's God or whether it's the archangel that he mentions just after that. Jude 9 says that that archangel will be Michael. But maybe it's the archangel that issues that cry of command, or maybe it's God himself that issues the the cry of command. But we think about that cry of command, and what I think of is, is like a military commander issuing a loud command. Attention! Stand up! This cry of command goes out, and then all of God's people hear that and respond to it. I think too of, of remember Jesus in John's Gospel when he stands before the tomb of Lazarus and he cries out with this loud voice, Lazarus, come out. That's what I think of here. And so this cry of command is issued, and then this, the voice of the archangel, and we're not told what the archangel says, but this voice of an archangel, and then with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now the trumpet. Let's think about just a minute for, about the trumpet. In the Old Testament, there's trumpets all over the place. Trumpets mean a lot of things in the Old Testament. We can find instances in the Old Testament where trumpet calls mean the beginning of a feast. Trumpet calls mean a celebration. They mean there's news, that there's maybe news of a battle, or it could be a call to a battle. A trumpet call would, uh, would assemble the troops for battle. Or we think of like in the Revelation, we think, of course, of the trumpets that are the judgment of God. The trumpet is heard and then the judgment bowl is poured out. So trumpets mean a lot of different things in the scriptures. But I think one of the, one of the main things that trumpets mean is what I think Paul is pointing to here. Look in your notes at Exodus chapter 19, verse six, verses 16 through 19. This The setting here is the nation of Israel is gathered before Mount Sinai. And God is about to come down onto Mount Sinai. And He's about to meet with His people. And He's going to give them His law. Listen to these words. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. That was a trumpet call of assembly. In other words, this trumpet call, this trumpet blast sounded. And what that meant was Moses gather the people. And I think this, that's what this trumpet is. It's a, it's a trumpet call of assembly. The trumpet blasts, and what that means is God's people assemble. Get up. Call a command. All of God's people assemble together. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So there he calls them the dead in Christ. But notice he calls them the dead in Christ. You know that once that we're in Christ, we're never not in Christ? And isn't it remarkable, we could easily just skip right over that without thinking about that, but isn't it remarkable that the Scriptures here affirm that not even death separates us from being in Christ. When we're dead, we're still called the dead in Christ. So he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17 then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up 
together with them. Now that word caught up is where we get our word rapture. It's a very violent word. It means snatched up or, or snatched out. The New Testament uses that word a lot. It's not a gentle word. It's, 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 it's a snatching out. It's a grabbing. And the, the Latin translation is where we get our word. In fact, we get our word rape from that. It's a violent word. It's a, it's a startling word. So he says that we are caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, the image of clouds in Scripture, if you've never thought much about clouds, let me encourage you, as you're working through your Bibles, let me encourage you to be aware of every time you see clouds. And the first thing that you'll notice is how often you see clouds in Scripture. They are all over the place, especially in the New Testament. But they're all over the place in the Old Testament, too. In your notes here, I just listed a bunch of New Testament references for when we see clouds. We see clouds, for example, at the baptism of Jesus. There's a cloud. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes into the cloud. The ascension of Jesus, Jesus is taken up into the clouds. The ascension of the two witnesses in Revelation is taken into the clouds. The return of Jesus, we're told that He comes out of the clouds or He comes on the clouds. Even the Old Testament and Daniel speaks about the return of the Son of Man on the clouds. Or we could even go back to the creation. At the creation, we see the clouds above the water. We see a cloud leading the children of Israel through the wilderness by day. We see a cloud filling the tabernacle as the tabernacle is, is dedicated. Then later on, as the temple is dedicated and Solomon prays, the temple is filled with a cloud. We see clouds all over the place in Scripture. And what do clouds mean? The basic meaning of clouds in Scripture is this. Clouds represent the place where God meets man. The place where God meets man. But here we're told that we are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that word is translated to meet. This meeting in the air. That word refers very specifically to a certain kind of ancient meeting that we really don't do anymore today. That word refers to a meeting in which an important person or a celebrated person is coming to a town or coming to a city and the people welcome that person into the city by going out to meet them and escorting them into the city. That's what that word refers to. We see that word in the old, using the Old Testament in the in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. We see that word used in the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 28, verses 15 and 16. This is where Paul is traveling to Rome and he gets near to Rome and the believers and the Christians in Rome hear that Paul is coming. And it says that they came out as far as the form of Epius and three taverns to meet us. And they followed them, they escorted them into Rome. But all, this word also relates to the tradition of ancient Jewish weddings. Remember the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25? So in the parable of the ten virgins, the, the story is there's these ten virgins. Half of them are wise, and they go and buy, they buy wicks, or they buy oil, I'm sorry. And the other half are foolish, and they don't buy oil. And the whole story revolves around them waiting for the bridegroom to come. Well, if we read that story carefully, what we see is the, the tradition of these ancient Jewish weddings when the bridegroom would be celebrating with the family and then 
the female parts of the of the wedding party would wait for the bride. Well, they would wait for that part of the festival to be over, and the bridegroom would then make his way to where the bride was, and they would go out and they would meet the bridegroom and they would escort him into the room where his bride would be waiting. And that's what the parable of the ten virgins is all about. If you read that parable, that's that's exactly what they do. Matthew twenty-five verses six through ten, he says. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And they arose, they trimmed their lamps, and the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So the idea behind this this meeting is a celebrated person coming to a wedding, as in the bridegroom, or a celebrated leader or person coming to a city, and the people go out to meet him and escort him in. We see the same sort of thing in non-biblical ancient literature. Plusibius talks about the new emperor of, of Rome being the people of Rome went outside the city and met him and escorted him in. Josephus talks about the same, the same types of meetings. It was very common in the ancient world for that sort of thing to happen. We don't hear about it today. And I think the reason for this is that in today's world, travel is so different that this sort of, that sort of meeting would be impractical. See, in the ancient world, people would travel by walking or travel by animals. And so they're moving really, really slowly. And so you can imagine if you're in a city and this celebrated leader is coming, it's not like he just drives up and here he is. He's coming from a long way and you sort of see him traveling and it takes maybe half an hour, an hour for him to travel as, as he crests the hill to get all the way to the city. And so instead of the awkwardness of everybody just sort of waiting while the guy is walking down the hill, they go out and meet him and escort him in. And that's what this is all about. That's the word that Paul uses here. And I think that that is the essence behind the meaning of what we think of as the rapture. Is that those who are in Christ will be called, there will be the trumpet call, we will assemble, and then we'll be caught up to meet him in the air for the purpose of escorting the king into his kingdom. I think that's the whole point. And I think that's why the Thessalonians were so worried that those who had died would miss that. And Paul wants to comfort them by saying, no, not only are they not going to miss it, they are going to be the first ones to meet him. Remember earlier I mentioned a, a historian by the name of Placebius who talked about the Roman emperor Vespasian, I think was his name. He writes about that same sort of meeting as the Roman citizens go out to meet this new emperor and escort him into the city of Rome. In that, he says that the higher-ranking citizens met him first. So apparently there was this idea that the more important you were, you were the first ones to go and meet the, the dignitary. The more important people of the town, they were the first ones to go out and greet the, the dignitary or the leader or the ruler and then the others would sort of come later. And so Paul's point is, those who have died in Christ, instead they haven't missed it. In fact, they'll be the first ones out there to greet Jesus, to escort him into the town. This passage is clearly talking about Jesus coming and snatching up his people. And in the context of this kind of meeting, it's all the purpose was to escort him in to begin his reign to escort this most important of dignitaries into his kingdom to begin his reign. And Paul wants to comfort them by saying, they haven't missed a thing, they'll be the first ones in line. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be snatched up, caught up together with him in the in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice where we meet him. We meet him in the air. Does anybody know what the scriptures tell us is the prince of the air right now? Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So even as Jesus is returning, even that domain of Satan is shattered now. So we'll meet him in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That reminds me of Revelation 21, where God says, I will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think specifically he means the last words he just said, that we will be with him forever. Comfort each other with these words. So the last thing to say about this is what Paul says here in verse 18. Comfort or encourage one another with these words. Notice Paul doesn't say to them, I'm writing these words to comfort you and pass this letter around let everybody read it so that my words will comfort you. He says, I want you to take these words and I want you to learn how to use these words so that you comfort each other. He's just giving an extension of what he said several times about how they love each other truly. They love each other genuinely with genuine hearts. And this is just sort of the next level. Paul says, take these words, learn them and use them because you are one another's comforters now. And isn't that how the church is supposed to work? We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.